Hello, everybody, and welcome to Roundhouse Crosstalk, a podcast hosted by the California State Railroad Museum. Today, I'm sitting here with Debbie Hollingsworth, an interpreter one here at the California State Railroad Museum, um, who did the uh, text panel writing as well as the research for the Chinese Railroad Worker Experience exhibit, um, which opened in, I always want to mix this up, 2016? 2019? 19. 19. It's because yeah. the six and the nine, they're the same. They're just, you know, yeah, you flip. just, what are you gonna do? one's upside down. <laughs> <laughs> Cool. Well, thank you uh, for joining us. This is part two. In that first part, we talked about why the Transcontinental Railroad was needed, um, why workers came over from China um, to build the Transcontinental Railroad, um, as well as their experience building the railroad to the Sierra Nevadas and then through the Sierra Nevadas, those um, blasting away at that hard granite rock. Um, in this part, we want to focus on what happens next. So they still have a long way to go before they eventually get to mm-hmm. Promontory in Utah. Um, and something you started touching on a little bit in that last po- podcast was that they went from having to deal with the conditions of a big mountain range right into a desert. Um, so what desert was that and what sort of was it like to, to work in a desert building a railroad? Yeah, we're talking about a big mountain range. We're talking about the Sierra Nevada mountain range and just the most difficult conditions that you can imagine that they had to work through. Um, they worked in the extreme heat of summer and some of the most brutal winter conditions. And those are some of the things that we talked about last time. So after they made it up and over the the Sierra Nevada and built to about Reno, they still followed the Truckee River. And the Truckee River, when that ended, that, that brought them into Nevada. Of course, Reno is in Nevada. So in northern Nevada, where the elevation is still pretty high. So it's still at about 4,500 feet above sea level, or high desert is what a lot of people would call it. So um, after the Truckee River, there is this 40-mile gap between the Truckee River and the Humboldt Rivers. 40 miles. And if you read anything about the California Trail and the pioneers who came to California, that was probably some of the most difficult territory for them to, to cover because there's nothing there. There's no water. And this also was very difficult for um, for the railroad workers working in that. Same thing as before, they still had this extreme heat in the summer. And because it's this high desert, it's very, very cold in the wintertime. And in addition, in this, this whole area, building the railroad up and over the Sierra, they had access to supplies. They had access to a lot of wood from the forests. But as they were going through northern Nevada, they didn't have supplies readily available. So workers used hundreds and hundreds of horses and carts to transport enormous quantities of construction materials, food for the humans and the animals. And then, of course, because there was no water, they had to bring the water in. So it was it was really difficult work. But still, they were able to build at this phenomenal rate. So I have a a few statistics here just to compare what it was like when they started and then when they ended. So from the fall of 1868 to May of 1869, they laid 501 miles of rail line. So to give a little perspective, 
in the years before that, trying to get up and over the Sierra, this great barrier, they uh, built maybe about 189 miles of track. So in the years for that, in the, let's see, I'm going to say about four years compared to one year, actually less than a year, fall of 1868 to May 1869, they laid 501 miles. So that tells you just how, even though it was difficult conditions, it was flatter ground and it was easier to build the railroad. Yeah, I wonder, like, part of that sounds like it might also, like, it's great that they're building it so much faster. I'm sure, you know, they're getting paid by the mile, so they're happy to get as fast as they can. But that also makes it logistically more difficult because now you're having to get that supply lines even you know you don't with when you're dealing with small increments and you're only going a couple of miles a day or, or whatever it is a couple of inches perhaps if you're dealing with the summit tunnel um you can kind of get used to the current supply line you don't have to keep re- kind of reinventing that wheel every single time um but if you are going at such a fast rate you have to get the supplies there as fast as you can. And we talked in the last podcast of them sort of being like moving cities because you have 10,000 Chinese railroad workers, you know, at a time that all need, as you mentioned, food and supplies and stuff for the, for the, the animals. And, you know, that's not even including the, um, the building supplies is just keep the workers going. Um, so that that's gotta be tough on the logistics side of things. It, it is. And, you know, I think we tend to forget that when we travel these days, even if it's a remote area, if we're traveling by car, all we have to do is find a gas station. <laughs> but when you are traveling with animals, you have to have food for them, you know. And if they're, if this is a, a desert area where there isn't a lot available to let them uh, eat, then you have to bring all of that in. So, and remember that this now is a race with the Union Pacific. So the Central Pacific Railroad was slowed down by trying to get up and over the Sierra, but now they really want to make up for lost time. So that's what they're doing. Absolutely. And speaking of that, um, one of the famous stories that we hear about for the Central Pacific and the Chinese railroad workers um, is setting the longest amount of tracks laid in a single day at 10 miles. And that's a record that is still intact today. Um, So can you Mm -hmm. talk a little bit about... um, why they decided to build 10 miles, because as we'll hear, they didn't build it in the traditional way. It was not the same. They just woke up one morning and happened to build 10 miles. Um, so, so what was sort of the incentive there, um, and how did they actually accomplish yeah, that? Yeah, they didn't wake up one day and decide to build 10 miles. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe they've done that before, but they sure didn't accomplish it until now. I'm going to start out with this great quote that I found mm-hmm. that I love this. Um, it's in David Bain's book. And the quote is, I never saw such organization as that. It was just like an army marching over the ground and leaving a track built behind them. And I think that tells everything. And this was written by a soldier who witnessed what was happening. What he's seeing is an army moving forward. And where there's no track in front of them, there's track behind them. That's how extremely organized it was. And, you know, if you're asking how this came about, probably in from one person who was Charles Crocker. Charles Crocker was the superintendent of construction for the Central Pacific Railroad. And as I said before, there's this competition going on between the Central Pacific and the Union Pacific. And that 
certainly extends to the people who ran these railroads. And so they had been kind of going back and forth where one side would build six miles in a day and be like, oh, yeah, we, we got it. We, we've, we've broken the record. And then the other side would say, not so fast. And then they would build, match them at six miles. So Crocker really wanted to set the record. And he waited until they got pretty close to the very end because that way the other side or the Union Pacific wouldn't be able to match him. So he waited until they were just outside of Promontory. So if you think about it, April 28th, 1869 is when they started the 10-mile day. And of course, what, two weeks later is when the ceremony, the Golden Spike ceremony, that completed the railroad. So Crocker wanted this to be it. 10 miles in one day, nobody could believe it. What, 10 miles, you know, you can't do that. And he had it all figured out and set out to do that. So no one had ever laid 10 miles in one day before. They haven't done it since. It, it is a record that still stands. So on April 28, 1869, at 7 o'clock in the morning, um, they had everything planned. So it, I think it's really fun to read about the statistics for this. But in, in some ways, they're too much for my brain to comprehend, you know, like how many thousands of bolts, hundreds of thousands of bolts it, it took. I don't know. That doesn't, those numbers don't really mean a lot to me, but it's really fun to see how much it took for 10 miles. And they started out with five trains of 16 flat cars, each full of supplies. Like they just had this thing figured out. Each train carried enough material to cover two miles of track. Um, and maybe sort of kind of like a little bit of cheating ahead of time, the Chinese railroad workers had distributed thousands of ties along the route in advance. So it was kind of laid out that way. I think, I think everybody gives them a break because the accomplishment was so huge. So the Chinese unloaded the bolts and fasteners and spikes, and then with two four-man teams, and I say men because it was men building these, of Irish workers, and the Irish workers would lift the rails and place on the ties. 560 pounds these rails weighed. So there were eight Irish workers that laid the rails. They worked, they were the same ones all day. They did not... Um, switch teams or anything. It was the same eight that laid all of those rails for that whole day that they took it. And then the Chinese would come along and they would straighten the track, drive the spikes into the ties, bolt the fasteners, and just, just go along working as soon as everything was done, then just keep working along. Um, by about midday, they had laid six miles of track. So now they knew they were going to win the bet, mm -hmm. right? And I say bet because there was maybe there was a bet of some money involved there. We don't really know that for sure. But, you know, even if there was or wasn't, it was a bet. It was Crocker saying, we can do this. So there were pretty high stakes um, associated with that. They did stop to eat lunch at 1.30. Um, serving meals to over 5,000 workers. Again, we're talking about how do you do that? You know, bring that much food at once for all those workers. And they concluded at 7 p.m., 12 hours 
after they started working in the morning and um, when they finished, they were only three and a half miles from Promontory. So, yeah, you can't for, beat that. Yeah, you couldn't beat it, right? <laughs> and as I said, that is a record that still stands today. Yeah, and I think one of the things that stands out to me about that day is it almost would have been, and the, the paying of the workers and all that might have had to, maybe that was part of it. Would, they didn't extend the work day for this. It was still within those 12-hour periods, right? <laughs> like, Yeah, that's a good observation. You yeah. know, like, like that would be the probably the most typical way of like, oh, we're going to lay more tracks in you. Well, we're just going to work for a 24-hour period. And hey, that's in a day. That counts. Um, so now fast forward in time, just that two-week period that we're talking about here um, to May 10th, 1869. So the Transcontinental Railroad is ready to be completed, um, and there's a big celebration planned, and of course that was originally intended for the 8th, um, but it actually takes place on the 10th. Mm -hmm. um, there's been some discussion um, about what role the, trans uh, the, the Chinese railroad workers um, played in that event. Um, were they there? Were they a part of the celebrations, and were they honored in any way? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there are a lot of people who, who will make the comment that the Chinese workers were deliberately left out of that celebration. But going back to that 10-mile day, and if there were 5,000, about 5,000 Chinese railroad workers there, and then how much that was April 28th, and we're talking May 10th, whenever they finished the, the remainder miles, you know that didn't take long. So what are 5,000 workers supposed to do? They just wait around? Until May the 10th, that didn't happen. You know that didn't happen. They weren't going to just wait around for that amount of time. So they were sent back. They were sent back to uh, work on parts of the railroad, to, you know, just make sure that everything was built properly to look at the construction. So they finished, and then they kept working. Um, going on to Promontory, they, there was this celebration which kind of came about at the last minute. Now, I don't want to say last minute exactly, but when we think of a celebration today, this is one thing that kind of gets me, is when we think of a celebration today, wow, you know, like cameras from all over the world are going to be there. They're going to be big screens. There's going to be, you know, like just the, the amount of celebration there. And of course, those things didn't, that kind of technology didn't exist then, but... This did come about at a time when they brought the two sides together. When you think about it, Leland Stanford was the only one of the associates who actually attended the ceremony. But there were some Chinese railroad workers that were there. They were given the honor of laying the last rail along with eight workers from the Union Pacific side, the Irish workers. So they laid the last rail for the Union Pacific side, and then the Chinese laid the last rail for the Central Pacific side. Then the ceremony happens, and after the ceremony happens and all the speeches and everything is done, then everybody goes back to their own private cars, and they have a celebration. This is when that famous picture that we know about, this is an iconic photograph of it's called the Champagne Photograph. And uh, when you see the two locomotives coming together 
And it's always brought up that, well, you know, you don't see any Chinese workers in there. Some people say there might be a few in there, but for the most part, you don't. It's because that celebration had kind of already ended and everybody went on their own ways. What I wanted to bring up, though, is the car that Strobridge had. And he was the chief of construction. He's the one who led the crews. And he had a private car. And in his private car, he had a fantastic luncheon set up with members of the press and officers from the, what was it, the 21st Infantry that had been at the ceremony. And then he brings in those eight Chinese uh, laborers. Mr. And here's the quote. Mr. Strobridge introduced his Chinese foreman and laborers who had been with him so long, took the head of the table, making some excellent remarks, and invited them to the banquet. How extraordinary is that, that they came onto the car, they got a standing ovation and applause from everybody that was on there. Strobridge thanked them for the work that they had done. And then everybody sat down and ate lunch together. So I think that that's something that doesn't maybe doesn't get a lot of press. And we know there is because all those newspapers were there reporting on it. Yeah. Well, and what's interesting there, too, is um, if, if our listeners from last uh, um, from part one remember, Strobridge originally did not want um, to to work with mm-hmm. these workers. Um, and through the process of the building of the Transcontinental Railroad, um, obviously, it ends up being 90 percent Chinese railroad workers. So he is, you know, starting to, to work with these folks. Um, and by the end, he's his mind has changed and he's thanking them in front of all these people. They're having dinner. I think that's a, a very interesting sort of powerful story of, of how people can change. As did everyone at this mm-hmm. celebration in Sacramento. Um, you know, they were praised by E.B. Crocker. Uh, you know, like they certainly at this time in history, their work was appreciated, mm-hmm. although... I was reading that in the speeches, all the speechifying, right, you know, that was going on when they laid the final spike, they weren't mentioned in the speeches, mm. in those speeches. So even on the day when they're finishing and they're putting in the gold spike there, the Chinese workers were not mentioned. From the perspective of these workers, they had just, there's 10,000 of them or so, um, they had just built the Transcontinental Railroad. Um, the Central Pacific obviously needed as many workers really as it could get its hands on to to build as fast as it can. Uh, but May 10th comes, they no longer maybe need 10,000 Chinese railroad workers. Um, what happens to these workers? Do some of them continue to work for the, for the Central Pacific? Um, and for those that no longer do, what, mm-hmm. are there any popular places mm-hmm. they end up finding work? Yeah, you're, you're right. Mm-hmm. That's that's a lot of people. What happened to them? Um, some of them did remain working with the Central Pacific Railroad. Some of them went and worked for the Union Pacific Railroad. There was still, they, they built so quickly, there was still work to be done um, on the railroad and to, to um, more construction and to fix it up. But there are also other railroads that are being built also. So, um, and now you have this very experienced group of workers who have only the highest rating of the, the work that they did. So they did go. They worked on other railroads throughout the uh, Northwest in particular. Um, they also were, went to work in other fields. They went to work in agriculture. They worked in, maybe they went to the city and 
uh, like San Francisco and worked in factories, um, like cigar making factories is one that seems to come up a lot. Um, you know, and, the, and there are other fields that they could work in. They could work in developing their own business, you know, laundry, um, cooking, opening restaurants. And I think I might have mentioned last time, but I depend very heavily reading um, Gordon Chang's book, Ghosts of Gold Mountain, and Professor Gordon Chang from Stanford University. And um, he brings up talking about what happened to them is that they actually, these workers, not only stayed here in the West, but they spread all over the United States because there was a lot of opportunity for them in just those types of fields that I mentioned, maybe opening a restaurant, maybe opening a laundry. Um, he talks about how in New York City that there were a lot of uh, Chinese workers there throughout the South. So it wasn't that they didn't just stay here. They might have found opportunity in all over the country. So in designing the Chinese railroad worker experience exhibit here at the California State Railroad Museum. Um, you were faced with some limitations on primary sources, and, and that's true of anybody doing research on this topic. Um, can you talk about some of those limitations um, and how we ended up relying on different sourcing um, to get to where we got? Yeah. Um, normally, if I'm doing an exhibit, I I will try and find as many primary sources as I can. What's a primary source? Well, these are personal accounts from the people you're writing about. That could be done through a letter from journals. You know, what did they feel? This was what we wanted to know of the Chinese workers. What were they feeling every day? Um, you know, what did they do in their daily lives? Was it the same in one part of the railroad as working on another part of the railroad? What did they eat? How did they cook their food? How did they manage sanitation? You know, these are all types of things that you would hope that you could find out through the use of various types of, of um, primary sources, of which there are none. And it's, it's a lot to make such a definitive statement to say there are none. There are no letters. There are no journals. There aren't even any interviews. Nobody was going to interview them for the newspaper. There isn't anything like that. Um, it's the Chinese Railroad Workers in North America project. I mentioned Gordon Chang a moment ago is from Stanford University. Stanford University uh, have this project and they just they've been working on it for years and haven't you know, even going back to China everywhere. They have not come up with a single letter. That doesn't mean that pe they didn't write letters. They certainly did, but for whatever reasons, they don't exist. Um, they just didn't manage it through time. A lot of that could be due, due to the racial prejudice against them, and Chinatowns were burned down, you know, several of them. So anyway, for whatever reason, it, it doesn't exist. So, I, you know, I'm mentioning um, Gordon Chang. We did meet with him and the other people that are associated with the project at Stanford. That would be Hilton Obenzinger, Roland Sue, and Shelley Fisher Fishkin. And they were wonderful in sitting and talking to us about their research and even looking over the text that I wrote and, you know, see if it was correct or if they could make any, any uh, suggestions. 
We also um, brought in people from the Chinese community. So the U.S.-China Railroad Friendship Association and, and other members in our meetings while we were planning this exhibit to talk to them about what they wanted to see in an exhibit about their own community. So using those sources, and I think one of the biggest things, and probably a little surprising to me, being an historian, I guess I'm not thinking about archaeological evidence a lot, but the archaeological evidence that exists really tells a lot, like those questions that I was posing at the beginning here of what did they eat? How did they prepare their food? What did they do for fun? Well, you can tell all of that. Their sanitation practices. You can tell all that from the broken bits of dishes and, you know, pipes or, um, you know, anything like that you can tell. So that told what the camps were like, where the camps were located. And so we learned a lot of things uh, from that, you know, including the type of food that they ate. And that's one of the most interesting things people talk about a lot is that the Chinese railroad workers ate food. They didn't eat the, the meat and potatoes provided by the railroad. They ate their own food, which was fresh fruits and vegetables, fish, uh, chicken, healthier types of foods than, um, than the other side that the white workers were getting. So all of that is through the archaeological evidence. It's really interesting, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. Because it's not like, well, that's the, the thing we've been talking about. They're, you know, it's like this big logistical problem where you have these moving cities going across the Sierras, then into the desert. And, you know, in any city, there's going to end up being, it's essentially going through the lost and found, right? And you're <laughs> able to find, you know, I'm sure the Chinese railroad worker who lost their pipe, um, you know, was bummed by it when the city moved on and they had to keep going without the, the pipe or whatever. But for us, that helps us understand them a little bit better, understand what their conditions were like. And that's just, it's, it's wonderful that we at least have that to go on. And maybe one day a letter will eventually be found or something. I feel like it found. will. I, yeah. I, I just find it hard to believe that there isn't one out there. But I also, doesn't it make you kind of shudder to think about future archaeologists, um, oh, yeah. historians, and they look back on us and our times and what we discard, what we throw away, what's, what's left. I think there's going to be a lot of styrofoam. <laughs> I, think, I think the other thing about potentially eventually finding a letter or some type of primary sourcing um, related to this, and, and who knows, maybe they, they fully don't exist and they've all been completely destroyed, but I'm, I'm hoping because even not that long ago, a year or two ago, um, we heard on a, a previous podcast that um, a Chinese railroad worker who worked on the Canadian Transcontinental mm -hmm. Railroad, um, we, they thought they had the same problem. And eventually somebody um, found their descendants' letter from that time period. I think it was even a journal. So they had all this you know, research to, to go off of. Um, and I'm hoping eventually we end up in that scenario as well, where we find a journal, someone finds a journal. And the more we tell this story, I think, the more this story is out there as an important story to tell, the more likely somebody's going to be going through all their, you know, their old family stuff, see that their their great, great grandfather, whoever, you know, worked on the Transcontinental Railroad, and is going to be able to make that connection that this is a, you know, good thing to share with the world. And at least my hope. That's a really, it's a great thought, and it goes for 
everybody out there. When a loved one dies and you're going through all their papers, I know there's a great tendency to just want to throw everything away because you don't know what to do with it. But just last week, I had the, I would say the honor to sit down with two people, two different people who came to the library and archives to donate letters that they found from their loved ones. And one of the letters was a letter that was written by uh, this woman's great-grandfather. And he wrote this letter describing his journey on traveling on the emigrant train after the building of the railroad. I, it's, it's wonderful, everything that he, that he noticed on his trip. And just think of the, the possibilities that we get to do with a letter like that. Mm -hmm. That's a primary source, right? So I would just hope that everybody listening would remember that historically, those letters and things are, are so important and to absolutely call your local archives or library if you come across anything like that. We found uh, the other ones, letters and, and photographs that we met with were people who um, had been raised in boxcar communities from Traqueros, which there again, we don't have a lot of information. So those two, th those two things from people who were going through old papers and then they contacted the library here. And now, you know, we, we get to enjoy those and use those in our research and in our educational programs. Mm -hmm. And that's the little things. Like when the people were writing them, they didn't think of them like this is going to be a letter or a journal that ends up mm -hmm. in a museum for, you know, future generations. But it's that mundane stuff that after a while is no longer mundane. Like what was it like to go on the transcontinental railroad? That's something that without those experiences and those those primary sources we just wouldn't we wouldn't have access to that anymore absolutely yep um so what do you think the legacy of the chinese railroad workers um is well that's really putting me on the spot <laughs> you have to solve an <laughs> open shut case uh, perfect uh this is the legacy right here um i think through all of this research and seeing this back and forth between the recognition of the workers and not recognizing them and knowing that buildings don't get built by themselves, railroads don't get built by themselves, uh, canals don't get dug by themselves, right? It's about the workers. So I think that this is truly the coming about that recognition of these Chinese railroad workers that are finally getting recognized uh, for their work. I think that's the, the true legacy, the great sacrifice of the men who worked in these brutal and dangerous conditions. And, um, you know, at a time when they experienced such racial hatred. And then they earned the respect of everyone that came in contact with them. So it's, it's a great legacy. And um, again, in Gordon Chang's book, he, he talks about um, these workers who remained here, they wanted to assimilate, they wanted to become citizens, they wanted to send their children to school here. And for a time period, they were able to, um, 
to they were recognized and they were hired in and had a lot of work. It really wasn't until the 1870s and economic downturn and white immigrants that were here and actually with the railroad bringing people across the West and wanting to find work and finding that there were Chinese immigrants working there that this resentment grew up, grew up around them, which is typical, I think, of any time period that you talk about. So I think that's also the significance of learning about the Chinese experience that is it so different from what's happening today, what happened at any time period throughout our history. And then, of course, with the Chinese, that culminated with the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act. And then um, and then again, once again, they experienced great violence against them. Some people returned to China. Others couldn't get back in because they had these restrictions of coming back into the country. So that's when the population, the Chinese population, dropped pretty significantly. Um, and if somebody wanted to learn more about this subject, where can they go? Um, there are, I, I keep mentioning Gordon Chang's book, Ghosts of Gold Mountain. It's it's a great book to read and so readable and, and very easy to understand if you want to know about the epic story of the Chinese who built the Transcontinental Railroad. Another book I wanted to talk about was The Chinese and the Iron Road, Building the Transcontinental Railroad, edited by Gordon Chang and uh, Shelley Fisher Fishkin, who I mentioned earlier. This is a wonderful book that covers all kinds of topics. And it talks about uh, the archaeological evidence and so many things. So, And it's a series of essays written by experts. So um, if you're really interested in the topic, I would highly recommend that. And then the one that we all love here at the museum, Empire Express, Building the First Transcontinental Railroad, by David Howard Bain is a very comprehensive book about the building of the railroad, both on the Central Pacific and Union Pacific side. It's a big book, um, but so, but if you're interested, lots of good reading. Awesome. Big, big book for a big topic. <laughs> um, what? Thank you for coming on the podcast. And My pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Roundhouse Crosstalk, a podcast hosted by the California State Railroad Museum. If you liked this week's episode, be sure to like, subscribe, and check our social media for our newest episodes. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you next time.